Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Welcome to the Dominic Enyart Show. Today we are talking about slavery in the Bible. Is the Bible pro-slavery? And that is a attack that a lot of people try to criticize the Bible by saying it is pro-slavery. They say that the Bible justifies the slavery in early America. And from Time Magazine, we see headlines like this, how Christian slaveholders used the Bible to justify slavery. We also hear famous celebrities, they will attack the Bible uh, from the slavery angle. Let's listen to two clips here from Bill Maher. You know who else had slaves? Everyone in the Bible. Everyone in the Bible. Should we cancel God? (laughs) I've tried. And that's both testaments. Yes, both testaments, my Christian friend. Both testaments have lots of rules and laws about slavery, and none of them are, don't do it. That never crossed their mind, don't do it. There's a lot of laws like, if a man kills your slave, you may kill his slave. Okay that time but in the bible nobody even thought to condemn it there's lots of rules about slavery in the bible none of them are don't do it they never even thought to say that like don't do it god's perfectly okay with it his boy jesus is perfectly okay with it they have rules like if a man kills your slave you may kill his slave oh okay so if a man kills your slave you may kill his slave stuff like that that is just not in there Um, And so there you hear it. The Bible was very pro-slavery. We get this type of attitude from the culture. And why should we trust this book that's pro-slavery? How can a pro-slavery book ever possibly teach us about morality? And so I want to dive into this topic and take a look at the ins and outs of it. I want to especially look at Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. And I'm choosing this passage to start with because it's very provocative. A lot of people, when they want to try to mock the Bible, they use this excerpt uh, to paint the Bible in a very negative uh, light. And so I thought I would start with this because this is where a lot of the conversation uh, revolves around. So Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. And as for your male and female servants whom you have from the nations that are around you, From them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall become your permanent slaves." All right, now, I if I personally, if I was trying to mock the Bible and ridicule the Bible and make fun of the Bible, I might use these verses. If I was a critic of the Bible, I might think that might make a persuasive attack against the Bible. If I were to grab these verses to not explain their context, to not explain them out at all, not to explain the surrounding cultural context, but I might be able to just use these verses on their own to try and paint the Bible in a very negative light. And I mean, after all, it says... Uh, they shall become your property. And that speaks for itself pretty much, right? That makes the the Bible look pretty darn bad. And now, why am I saying this? Why am I, as a Christian, calling attention to these verses? Shouldn't I try to hide this and not let anyone see it? Shouldn't I try to, you know, skip over that? Shouldn't I try to avoid that? Um, 
But as a Christian, I am not ashamed of the Bible. I'm not going to try to hide it and prevent anyone from seeing it. This is the word of God. All scripture is profitable and God breathed. And if there is a verse that seems to be problematic, I don't want to avoid it, but I want to take it head on. I want to analyze it. I want to see if the Bible critics, I want to see if they actually have a point with this. And so today we're going to be analyzing this verse and other uh, verses that Bible critics use. And we're going to see if critics like Bill Maher here or, you know, Time Magazine, if they have a point. And as Christians, we have an obligation to study this. We have an obligation to know what the Bible says. We have an obligation to know why the Bible says it. And we have an obligation to defend our faith in the midst of these attacks. Or if our faith is indefensible, it should be abandoned. And that's something that makes a lot of Christians very uncomfortable to say, if our faith is indefensible, then we should not have faith. If we are wrong, we should not be Christians. And that makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable to consider. It makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable to consider, you know, what if I'm wrong? What are the consequences of being wrong? Uh, but it doesn't make Paul uncomfortable. He has the courage of his convictions. He is He's willing to say things like, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is false. He is not afraid of these hypotheticals. He is not afraid of falsifying Christianity. He knows that Christianity has to be falsifiable. And why? Why, why is it that I'm willing to take a look at these things? Well, because I believe Christianity is defensible. Christianity does have the answers because Christ did rise from the dead, etc., etc. Um, I'm a Christian because I believe it's true. I believe that it's just. I believe that the Bible, I believe that it's moral. And I say that even in the, in the face of uh, verses like this from Leviticus 25, even in the face of, you know, the, this uncomfortable passage here, and even with my Western view of morality, even with my view that slavery is immoral, I have come to this conclusion. As a Christian, I have come to this conclusion that even with all that, in the face of these verses, I still think the Bible is moral and uh, defendable. And why? Why is that? Why can I be against slavery uh, but still you know, agree with these verses? And why is that? Well, that is what we are taking a look at here today. And so to start, we are going to take a look at modern day slavery and ancient slavery. And, and when I say modern day, I'm putting air quotes around that. When I say modern day slavery, I mean how we view slavery today, right? We, when we think of slavery, we have this image in our mind of, you know, kind of racist Southerners. They uh, purchased kidnapped blacks from Africa and they forced them to uh, work in cotton fields and whipped them brutally. Uh, slaves, they were used as, they were sex slaves, essentially. Uh, very often, slave owners gave uh, their slaves very horrible living conditions. They punished them mercilessly for, you know, any form of disobedience and attempted escape. That would be met with 
harsh beatings or even the death penalty. And I remember being, you know, a little kid in school learning about the American uh, slave trade. And as a kid, I was horrified by it, rightfully so. What happened to blacks in America was atrocious. And now our view of slavery, what we think of as of slavery with American slavery, it is different from slavery in ancient Israel. And so in biblical times, slavery, it was the forced servitude of one person to another. And this can range. This is a, a big umbrella term, and it can range from a relationship wherein a slave or servant is bound to a master but is you know, provided for, um, you know, entirely, their entire uh, life is provided for. It can range from that to a cruel relationship where a slave is simply used and barely provided for. And that word there, slavery, it's very unfortunate because it its usage has narrowed so dramatically in modern times. It used to be this, you know, umbrella term for just servant, a servant of any kind, you might call a servant a slave. Um, Of course, the entire nation of Israel, they were in bondage. They were uh, slaves of the Egyptians. And this uh, slavery to the Egyptians, it was a very barbaric form of slavery. The Egyptians would harshly punish any form of disobedience or rebellion. And of course, infamously, there was the genocide committed against the Israelite children via mass post-birth abortion. And so there was slavery like that. And then there was also uh, the slavery of oh, I, you know, I'm a really poor man, I'm going to starve to death, and so there's a family over there, they are a wealthy family, I like those people, so I'm going I'm to go and become a slave, and I'm going to work for them, and they will provide for me. And it was more of a, uh, a, a servitude than what we think of as slavery today. And it was very common that people would sell themselves into slavery. And that, that's why I'm saying that word slavery it's an uh, it's a unfortunate word because it muddies the waters a bit, and so many Bible translations they will, uh, you know, the, use the word bond servant instead of slave, which that helps to convey the message a little bit better, I believe. And in these relationships between a servant and a master, it was not necessarily this brutal form of slavery that we picture. Uh, when we think of American slavery. And so those verses I read earlier, we read, they shall become your property. And, you know, that that makes us rather uncomfortable. And now I'm going to read the verses immediately before those verses, which should alleviate our discomfort to a significant degree. And so this is Leviticus 25, 38 through 43, And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve you as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, 
he shall be with you and you shall and he and shall serve you until the year of jubilee then he shall depart from you he and his children with him and shall return to his own family he shall return to the possession of his fathers for they are my servants whom i brought out of the land of egypt they shall not be sold as slaves you shall not rule over him with rigor but you shall fear your god and so let's break this down. If you, if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. One of your brethren, that, that word brethren there, uh, it can mean biological brother. It can mean that, uh, but typically it doesn't mean your biological brother. Typically that Hebrew term, and let's see if I can pronounce this correctly, ahol, ahol. I think that might, that might be, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but that is translated as brethren. It's a very guttural word, and it is used figuratively to mean a fellow countryman, a close friend, perhaps even actually a biological brother, but typically just a countryman. And in whatever case it's used, it's used to reference someone, and get this, it's referencing someone equal in status. That's what it, what, it, what it's supposed to convey. A brethren is someone who is equal in status to yourself. So brethren are equal in status. And so this verse, it could very reasonably be interpreted. If someone equal to you in status becomes poor and they ask for a job, you shall not compel that person to serve as a slave. And that word there, slave, I believe... Um, when it's saying that, it's actually uh, referring to what we do think of as modern-day slavery. Uh, and the purpose of this is to illustrate, you know, if someone is coming to you for a job, don't treat them like a slave. Don't treat them like they're lesser than you. Don't rule over them ruthlessly. Don't, uh, you know, treat think of yourself as better or more valuable than they. But as verse 43 says there, you shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. And of course, this is your brethren. This is someone who is equal to you. You are not more valuable than they. In fact, all are made in the image of God. You are both image bearers and you are both infinitely valuable. And then we see there in verse 40, as a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And so that, that year of Jubilee, what is, what is that year? Uh, well, there is a very popular secular entertainment company, and they, they named themselves Jubilee. And I've always laughed at that. I've always thought that's kind of funny because there's no way that they have any clue what their name means or where it comes from. Uh, but So I, I always laugh when I see Jubilee. Uh, but in Israel, there was the year of Jubilee, and the year of Jubilee, that came once every 50 years, uh, 55-0, once every 50 years. And on the year of Jubilee, all of the property would always, it would revert back to its original owner and say, for example, say you are part of the tribe of Benjamin and you might purchase land from someone, say someone from the tribe of Judah. And that might make sense, right? The tribe of Benjamin, they're not very big. They don't have a lot of land, whereas Judah has a ton of land. And so someone from Benjamin, they might want some more land. So they purchase it from someone from the tribe of Judah, which is 
right next to them makes a lot of sense. This type of thing would happen frequently. And how it would work is on the year of Jubilee, the land, it would all revert back to its original owner. In this example that I'm, this hypothetical hypothetical example I'm giving, the property, it would be returned to the tribe of Judah. And so if you bought land from another tribe, you would know that the year of Jubilee is coming. Say it's coming in 40 years from now. You might have to pay a lot of money because you're going to own that land for 40 years years. That will be your property for 40 years, and you would pay a lot of money for it. But say the year of Jubilee, say it was, you know, three or four years away, then you would not nearly pay uh, as much money. You would pay a lot less money for it. And essentially what you'd be doing is you would be paying a lease on that land, and that land during that time, it would be considered your property. And all the leases they all expire on the year of Jubilee, and all that property, it would go back to its original tribe. And now, when that happens, when someone hires themselves out as a slave, how does that work? And now, when I use the word slave, a servant, that might be a better uh, usage of that word there, but how does that, how would that work? And they become someone else's property. Well, it'd be the same exact thing. And so just like how the land, it would revert back to its original owner, so too would a slave, it would revert back to the original owner. And so if you hired yourself out as a slave, what would happen? Well, on the year of Jubilee, you would uh, then go back to the tribe which you originally were from and then what would happen on the year of Jubilee, then we read the Bible, it says there, and then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. And that possession of his fathers, that just means uh, his tribe, his tribe's land. And so he and his children, because, you know, he might uh, he might leave, he might go into uh, servitude, as a single guy, and then as he's a servant, he might start a family, he might build up some wealth for himself during his years of service. You know, this could be a long time of service or a short time of service, depending on how long until the next year of Jubilee. But then on the year of Jubilee, he and his family, they would return to their own tribe. And it's not this awful thing of, you know, slave owners, they can beat their slaves and will keep them forever against their will. Uh, but this was a position of service uh, similar to that of an employee. In fact, there were rules placed around how you could treat your employees or your servants, or, you know, you might say bond servant or your slave, depending on the translation that was the word. But this was how, in gen- generally speaking, you were to treat your employees. And so say such as Exodus 21, which says, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Or say, uh, later on, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of the tooth. And now, all these verses about slavery, all the Bible critics that they all hate, uh, they were, for the most part, written 
in the law of Moses. They were written by Moses. Moses, he was known as the lawgiver. And Moses, quite famously, he hated the poor treatment of slaves, of bond servants, and he did this because his own brethren, his own countrymen, they were held in slavery in Egypt. They were held uh, by the Egyptians in the same way that Americans had blacks as slaves, and they were all treated horribly. And Moses, the lawgiver who wrote all of these verses, he hated that so much that he actually killed an Egyptian slaver. In Exodus chapter 2, we read this. Now, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And now the Bible doesn't explicitly go into detail over whether or not this was a justified killing. Was Moses defending this guy and he had to kill him in order to save the Hebrew, or did he you know, go overboard and kill this guy when he didn't need to? We just don't know. Uh, but what we do know, what this does tell us, is that Moses, he was not at all comfortable with slaves being treated unfairly. And so Moses, uh, and Moses, by the way, can we just take a moment to reflect on Moses' bio? Moses, he was born and he was essentially adopted into a royal Egyptian household. He was essentially a prince over all of Egypt. He could have easily ruled over these Hebrew slaves and used them as personal slaves. He could have ridden on them and built his own legacy of a ruler on their backs. But what did he do instead? He could have done that. What did he do instead? Well, he ditched his royal position uh, and he did that so he could fight against the Pharaoh, and he did that to try and support and free the slaves. And keep in mind, as he was freeing the slaves, he was hated by those same slaves that he was trying to free, but he continued fighting for them regardless. Uh, he ended up wandering around in the wilderness before dying on a mountain in the middle of a desert. That's pretty much uh, how his life went, and he did all of that just so he could free this entire nation from a life of captivity in slavery. And had it not been God working through Moses, Moses and Aaron, had that not happened, they would have remained in slavery indefinitely. And so Moses, he gave up this prestigious royal position over slaves so that instead he could have an awful life, all so that he could free an entire nation uh, from the bondage of slavery. And as he was doing so, the very slaves he was trying to free, they all hated him. Um, and so this guy who, who has that bio, who gave up everything to try and help free these slaves, that is the guy who wrote this law about slavery. And I think his bio here, his track record when it comes to slavery, it should at least give him the benefit of the doubt, if nothing more, uh, with all of this. Uh, but so regardless, Moses, he was not comfortable with the poor treatment of slaves. And uh, we see that here in, 
what Moses was writing, Leviticus 25, uh, very clearly that was not the same type of slavery that he was talking about as what he saw in Egypt, uh, as the same type of slavery that would be what we think of as early American slavery. Uh, Remember, in the year of Jubilee, if it was your countrymen working for you, uh, on the year of Jubilee, they would go free. They would go back to their own tribe. Uh, There wouldn't be this service to you forever without ever having the possibility of leaving. Uh, They would have had free will in the matter. Uh, Also, I won't get into this too much, but the Bible does say that if there is ever a servant who wants to permanently be someone's slave, they can go before uh, the leaders, the elders of a tribe, and say before the the leaders, I love this family, I love my master, I love my family, I want my family to serve this family. And in those cases, a servant uh, could be a slave forever if they wanted to. Um, And even in those cases, it had to be the servant themselves who would go before the elders and say that. It couldn't be the master who would go before the elders and say that. It had to be the servants and who would say, you know, we really want to be the ones who are saying, we want to do this for this this family and we want to live under them. Um, But okay, how, how about this? How about what if it was not one of your countrymen? What if it was a slave or, you know, a servant? Uh, that would be the better word here, from a different country, from a people who were not of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, if you bought them from a different country, they would remain your servants even past the year of Jubilee, and their children would also, they would be your servants also, and it would be more of a permanent type of employment. And let's let's read that from earlier when we, when we read this before, it made us a bit uncomfortable. It should make us a little bit less uh, uncomfortable with each reading. And as for your male and female slaves whom you have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property, and you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession, they shall be your permanent slaves. And so when we read uh, those verses, when we read them originally, it made us very uncomfortable. And now that we have a little bit more context around this and we can unpack it a bit, it becomes a little bit less uncomfortable. Uh, them being slaves, it does not get across the same mes- message. Rather, we know that they are servants. That's more of a accurate way of thinking about this. And that word buy, it says you you bought them from so-and-so, uh, that does not imply that you brought the, you bought them from a slave trader who had kidnapped them, uh, but very possibly, like how the Hebrews would sell themselves into slavery, so too would those from other nations. In America, when we think of modern-day slavery, we think of how Africans, how they kidnapped Uh, other Africans and sold them to Americans, and we kind of just assume that's how it was in Israel. Uh, However, we know that's not the case, and how do we know? Well, part of the law 
uh, as written by Moses, Moses the lawgiver who hated of the slavery he saw in Egypt, part of that law that he wrote was Exodus 21:16 which says whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And so uh if you tried to do what the American slavers did, if you tried to do that, you would have been put to death according to the law of Moses. You couldn't just go, you know, kill some people, kidnap some slaves and then go sell them. If you did that, you would be put to death. And if someone bought those slaves from you, the people who bought them, they would be put to death. Uh, Furthermore, we can take a look at what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 23. You shall not give back to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. You shall not oppress him. In fact, we see in in Exodus 21 in the Bible that shows that servants would sometimes actually marry their masters. And at that point, uh, the slaves, they have all the rights that a a wife might have at that point. It'd be like today if a, you know, someone, an employee married their boss, uh, which you know, in the corporate world, there might be some rules against those types of relationships, but there's very clearly, there's nothing inherently immoral about that. Um, Obviously, the, you know, sexual manipulation like Hollywood with their casting couch, uh, that's horrendous, and that's condemned by the Bible very clearly. Uh, But obviously, there's nothing inherently immoral about an employee marrying an employer. Uh, But so do you kind of see how wildly different the view of slavery was in the Bible compared to the modern day view? And so uh, just to take a moment to review all the differences, uh, one, if you were to kidnap someone and sell them into slavery, you would be put to death and so would the person who bought the slaves. Number two, if you beat a slave and they died, uh, they would be avenged and you would be put to death. Number three, if you beat a slave and they don't die, but they are seriously hurt, they will go free. Um, And by the way, corporal punishment, that was supported by the Bible. That was very common back in the day. If you want to get mad at the Bible for that, uh, that's an interesting but completely separate conversation. Um, I'm actually completely in favor of bringing back corporal punishment. That's how they do it in Singapore. And it is mind-numbingly obvious that that is a good and effective thing. Um, but the point here is that the Bible, it actually was protecting slaves from unjust corporal punishment. Uh, number four, if a slave does not want to serve his master, he can walk free and he can choose any place that he wants to live and he should not be oppressed. That's according to the law of Moses. Number five, these servants, they loved their masters, sometimes so much that they would marry their masters, not like sex slaves, but they would have these good relationships with them. They would go before the elders. They would say, I love this family and I want to be part of this family. I want to serve them. Uh, But even in those cases, they still had the freedom to walk away. And so these claims that the Bible is a slave owner's a slaveholder owner's manual, claims like that, uh, they are claims made in bad faith, and they're made in bad faith in order to paint the Bible in a very intentionally misleading and negative light, 
It's a claim made without any historical or cultural context. And it's very clearly the law of Moses, by the way. Uh, we aren't supposed to follow the law of Moses according to the Bible and the way that these atheists act as if uh, we are supposed to as Christians. But even if we did, even if we took all that ancient Hebrew law, which it, no one is supposed to follow anymore, but even if we were to take that according to the Bible and we did follow it as if we lived back then, even then that would have utterly and completely protected, say, the blacks against the slavery that we saw in early American history. And so if you think the early Americans... If you think that they treated blacks poorly with slavery, which of course they did, if you think that, you should wish, you should wish and think, oh man, I wish only if they would have listened to the Bible back then. Only if those who had kidnapped blacks and sold them into slavery had been prevented and ex executed just like how Moses said they should be. Uh, then we would not have the unfortunate legacy that we do as Americans. If only we had followed the Old Testament law back then, then that dark part of American history could have been avoided. So no, I don't find this line of attack persuasive. I don't think it's persuasive that the Bible was pro-slavery. It's a poor attack made in poor faith. It intentionally mis understands and misrepresents what the Bible is actually saying. It intentionally ignores the context surrounding this. And so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read this one more time. Uh, Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property, and you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. And so with all of this in mind, this is essentially saying you may take servants from other nations into your household. They can work for you. They can uh, become your property. And the property there, what that means is, you know, if Starbucks, say you sign a contract with Starbucks and you go work for them and they pay you money, uh, you have an obligation to do what they tell you. You have an obligation to make frappuccinos for them all day long. And if you sign a contract with them, that's a contract that will last the rest of your life, uh, you should honor that contract and uh, you should do that for the rest of your life. That's essentially what this is saying. But even then, for if for any reason a slave does not want to do that anymore, which if they agreed to doing that, they should continue to do that. But if they want to stop and abandon their job, uh, the Bible says, let them leave. Do not return them to their masters. Uh, and let them live among you wherever they want to live. They don't need to cross any state lines to get to safety or whatever, uh, but just anywhere they want to live among you is fine. Don't return them to their masters. Um, and then the kids of these servants, uh, they will serve your kids. Uh, and the parents of the, you know, these servants who are parents, uh, they might teach their kids, you know, hey, guys, we, we like this family. They provide for us. We want to serve them and we want to live with them and they will give us food and shelter and we can earn a living here. And then those kids, they probably should continue with that. They'll most likely, you know, die if they try and run off and 
uh, go on their own. But if they ever do want to escape from that type of life, uh, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says, let them go. Uh, Echoing Moses' words, let my people go. These people, they're free to go. It's not this enslavement of, you know, I have no free will in the matter. I can't ever leave. Uh, So is the Bible pro-slavery? Sorry, Bill Maher, you misrepresented this one. You got this one wrong. The Bible actually advocates for the rights of slaves. Uh, Only if Moses had been in charge here in America, we could have completely avoided that dark chapter in our history. Hey, that is going to do it for me here today on the Dominic Enyart Show. Make sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. Also check out our shorts on the Dominic Enyart YouTube channel. Uh, We've been working on getting some of those out. I hope you guys have been enjoying all of those. Hey, I'm out of time. May the Lord bless you and may he make his face to shine upon you.